Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Friday the 13th, Friday, January 13, and I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette, this story is by Vanessa Miller. More high schoolers taking courses at Iowa Community Colleges. For the first time in more than a decade, Iowa's 15 community colleges in the last full academic year saw a collective bump in credit-seeking students, although the total number of hours they took continued to fall, sustaining a trend of students taking lighter course loads. And despite a 0.4% uptick to 117,464 students enrolled from the fall of 2021 through summer 2022, Community college credit enrollment across Iowa remains tens of thousands below its peak in 2011, when the U.S. economy was recovering from the Great Recession that began in 2007. In a new 2022 annual Condition of Iowa's Community Colleges report, presented Thursday to the Iowa Board of Education, the state's public two-year colleges reported evidence of Iowa's shifting demographics economic headwinds, workforce demands, and pandemic implications. The COVID-19 pandemic precluded face-to-face instruction for many educational institutions nationwide, according to the report, noting 76% of students nationally enrolled in some type of community college distance learning class two years ago in a 2020-21 academic year. The percentage was 68 in Iowa that year, a marked spike over 38% the year before. And while Iowa's community colleges in the 2021-22 academic year saw their biggest ever drop in online enrollment from a record of 77,015 to 69,396, it remained higher than pre-pandemic levels. Allison Jepson executive director of the Division of Community Colleges and Workforce Preparation, told the Board of Education. And some of that, of course, was due to more classes being in session again and students choosing to return to in-person classes, she said. Driving the campus's overall enrollment increase for the full 2021-22 academic year that wrapped last summer, an uptick that continued this fall with a 0.6% bump, was more growth in jointly enrolled students. Those are high school students taking one or more community college classes. In 1999, Iowa's community colleges collectively reported an enrollment of 3,890 students ages 17 and under, or about 4% of their total. Given the vast majority who participate in joint enrollment courses do so through a contractual agreement between their school district and a community college, meaning they don't have to pay out of pocket, those numbers have surged over the years. In the full 2021-22 academic year, 50,082 high school students enrolled in one or more community college classes, representing a 6% increase over the prior year and amounting to 43% of the campus's total combined enrollment. Of those students, 941 received certificates, 580 received associate degrees, and 283 received diplomas while still in high school, 
representing a 61% spike from the year before. Iowa continues to lead the nation among the percentage of high school students who enroll in community college courses, according to the report, citing National Center of Education statistics data from 2019, the most recent available. It shows Iowa enrolling nearly 37% of 18 and younger students compared with 16% nationally. Iowa's community colleges in the most recent academic year also reported an increase in non-credit-seeking students, something that hasn't happened since the Great Recession in 2008. The 151,294 students taking non-credit courses amounted to 7.3% increase from the prior year. That's a pretty exciting thing for us to see, Jeremy Varner, administration of the Iowa Division of Community Colleges, told the board, referencing dramatic losses over the years among that cohort, which had topped 300,000 in 2004. The majority of them are job training, Varner said. We're talking about training, certifying nurse assistants, truck drivers, welders, So seeing a rebound in that enrollment after a couple-year decline is a really exciting thing to see. Also noteworthy was the record minority enrollment, reaching 24.3% and representing the growing diversity of the state. As Iowa residents account for 89% of the combined community college enrollment. The guiding principles of the community colleges are open access, affordable education, Economic growth, community support, and value to the state, Executive Officer Jepson said. But part of the access piece is tuition, which has continued to climb as state support has waned, according to the Community College Report. All 15 of Iowa's community colleges raised their prices for the current academic year, bumping up the average cost per credit hour from $199 last year to $206 this year, a 2.5% increase. Cedar Rapids-based Kirkwood Community College recorded the largest increase both in terms of dollars and percentage. Its cost per credit hour rose from $186 last year to $200 this year, $14.7.5%. But including both tuition and fees, Kirkwood still remains among the lowest cost options with Des Moines Area Community College charging the least at $178 per credit hour and Northwest Iowa Community College charging the most at $222. Despite the rate hikes, Iowa's community colleges have seen an annual drop in tuition and fee revenue when adjusted for $2022. The adjusted tuition revenue fell to $290.5 million in 2022, that's down 17% from $350.8 million in 2018. Considering adjusted general aid from the state also has dropped in, excuse me, from $237 million in 2018 to $217.8 million in 2022, the community college's collective revenue was down 8%. The dominant funding streams are state and tuition, Administrator Varner said. Given that the pandemic created new budgetary hardships for prospective students facing rising tuition, financial aid is increasingly important in making higher education acceptable, or excuse me, accessible. 
Yet total aid distributed by Iowa's community colleges has dropped, largely due to declining federal aid, which fell from $264.8 million in 2018 to $214 million in 2022. The colleges themselves have picked up some of that slack, but not all of it. Affordability concerns certainly remain, he said. Turning to the Iowa Today page, page 2, Alburnett Schools Search for a New Superintendent. This story is by Grace King. The Alburnett Community School District is in search of a new leader after Danielle Trimble was named last month as the next superintendent of the Ballard Community School District in Huxley. Trimble, who has led Alburnett Schools for over a decade, resigned effective June 30. She will start her new position at Ballard Schools July 1. In a December 16 letter to the Alburnett School Board, Trimble said she submitted her letter of resignation with mixed emotions. Alburnett has shaped me as a school leader, she wrote. It is with great pride in and admiration for the employees of this district that I say that this district is an educational leader in this area of the state. Earlier this week, the Alburnett School Board selected Grundmeyer Leader Services to lead a superintendent search. Trimble said she expects the process to take about eight weeks. Trimble led the district in a successful $11.5 million bond issue passed by voters in March of 2020. As part of the bond, classrooms were remodeled for an industrial technology, family and consumer science, agriculture, and business programs. Other construction projects soon to be completed are a multi-purpose building with a full-size gym. The current gym in the original Albernet School building is being remodeled to add eight classrooms. An auditorium and new music rooms will be completed this spring. The referendum required 60% approval from voters in the district on two ballot questions. The first was for the project itself. That was approved by 65.7% of voters. The second ballot item was to allow the tax levy rate to exceed $2.70 per $1,000 of assessed taxable value, but not to exceed $4.05. That passed by 64.3% of voters. The school board also authorized use of the district's portion of an existing one-cent sales tax for schools to add up to $3.4 million to the bond issue fund. This year, the K-12 school district grew from 100 students, much of which is attributed to open enrollment, <clears throat> bringing the student body up to about 820. The bond referendum created room for this growth, Trimble said. In an interview with the Gazette, Trimble said, Alburnett helped raise me and my children. The way this community embraces the school district and vice versa was a beautiful lesson for my children growing up, she said. Trimble said she is looking forward to bringing her experience with her to Ballard schools, including working to improve the school system every day, even when you're already in a great spot to start with. The Ballard Community School District has four schools serving 1,850 students, about 1,000 students larger than Alburnett. Ballard School Board members also worked with Grundmeyer Leader Services to conduct the search for a new superintendent. I am so excited to begin working with the Ballard community employees, board members, and students, Trimble said in a news release from Ballard Schools. 
I believe my experiences have prepared me well to serve the district, and I look forward to earning your trust each and every day we work together. Also in Iowa News from Central City, this story by Emily Anderson. A Central City woman was arrested Wednesday after she reportedly was caught on surveillance footage lighting her own restaurant on fire. She made a fraudulent insurance claim two days later, according to a criminal complaint. Heidi Renee Legal, 43, is charged with first-degree arson and insurance fraud. Both are felonies. Legal is the owner of the Stove House Restaurant at 2 Al Waterhouse Avenue, Central City. The Lynn County Sheriff's Office responded to a fire at the restaurant on Saturday at about 11.30 a.m. The Central City Fire Department, Coggin, Alburnett, Centerpoint Ambulance Service, and Marion Fire Departments also responded, according to a news release from the Sheriff's Office. The Iowa Department of Safety, excuse me, Public Safety, and the State Fire Marshal's Division assisted the Lynn County Sheriff's Office with the investigation which determined the fire was set intentionally. According to the criminal complaint, <clears throat> Legal was going through financial difficulties and owed the property owners two months of rent. She had reportedly been served eviction notices the day before the fire. Also in Iowa Today News, this Emily Anderson story, a Cedar Rapids man was arrested just after midnight Thursday after police responded to a report of a shooting at an apartment on the 1300 block of 3rd Avenue Southeast. Lafayette Hampton, 24, is accused of nine charges. Intimidation with a dangerous weapon, intent. Interference with official acts armed with a firearm. Domestic abuse assault, third or subsequent offense. Possession of firearm or offensive weapon by domestic abuse offender. Use of a dangerous weapon in the commission of a crime. Assault <clears throat> causing bodily injury. Possession of controlled substance, marijuana. Person ineligible to carry dangerous weapons. And possession of drug paraphernalia, according to a criminal complaint. He's being held in the Lynn County Jail, according to a news release from the Cedar Rapids Police Department. According to a criminal complaint, Hampton hit a woman with whom he is in an intimate relationship multiple times in the face and threw her to the ground. That caused swelling and discoloration in her eye and abrasions to her abdomen. He also assaulted another woman who lives with the first woman by hitting her multiple times and slamming her head into a door. The first woman grabbed a gun to defend herself and shot a warning shot toward Hampton when he was outside the apartment, the complaint states. Hampton fired back. Police found shell casings in the area. Hampton was arrested after refusing to listen to police officers. While they were attempting to arrest him, police saw Hampton attempt to dispose of a firearm. He was also found to have marijuana and a grinder used to prepare marijuana. Also in Iowa Today News, this story by Vanessa Miller, Kirkwood to relocate and cut Iowa City services and sell branch. After warning faculty and staff last month of likely changes to its 32-year-old Iowa City campus, Kirkwood Community College confirmed Thursday it's moving most of its operations from that facility to its regional center in Coralville and then selling the branch campus. 
The Kirkwood Regional Center at the University of Iowa meets our needs as it has plenty of space, Kirkwood President Lori Sundberg said in a message to faculty and staff at the Cedar Rapids-based college about the changes coming later this year. Our research also indicates the site is more accessible to community overall, she said. Following a campus study and community survey, Kirkwood has decided to move both credit and non-credit courses to the regional center by fall, according to Sundberg, who said Kirkwood also is exploring possibly expanding its partnership with the Iowa City Community School District at the district's newly acquired ACT campus facility. That, she said, also makes good sense as it allows us to maintain a presence in Iowa City in a more cost-effective manner with current enrollment levels. The new locations, as well as the cost savings, will allow us to focus more resources to give our students the support they need to succeed, she said. A recent Kirkwood assessment of its assets found if nothing changed over the next 24 years, the institution would spend nearly $40 million maintaining the 97,094-square-foot Iowa City campus, which has a current classroom use rate under 40%, and saw a 75% enrollment slide from 2016 to 2021. Given those drops, Sundberg said Kirkwood also will cut the number of sections offered to best meet the needs of current enrollment levels in Johnson County. In a news release, Kirkwood officials said research has shown students' need much di- needs are much different today than they have been in the past. In order to ensure higher student retention and completion rates, a shift toward a personalized student support approach has become a necessity for higher ed institutions. College officials expect this to be an ongoing need as students continue to arrive on campus with life changes that make pursuing an academic journey difficult. In her message, Sunberg acknowledged resource allocation is a balancing act. We face a challenge in figuring out how best to support today's students, both inside and outside the classroom, while also balancing our expenses and revenues, Sundberg said. This consolidation allows our institution to focus more of our resources on student support. Kirkwood expects to save about $400,000 annually by selling the Iowa City campus. From the start, we pledged to provide a transparent and timely process, and I've tried to keep everyone informed as we look at every possible angle that allows us to better serve our students and our district in a cost-effective manner, Sunberg wrote. I encourage everyone to work collaboratively as we embark on this move and also ask each of you to consider ways that you personally can help to make it a success. Turning now to the Insight page, the Gazette's own editorial today is titled, Election Changes Make Sense. Secretary of State Paul Pate and county auditors from across Iowa are proposing common-sense election law changes providing uniform rules for recounts and expanding the amount of time Iowans have to receive and cast absentee ballots. We urge lawmakers to take action on these proposals. Pate is asking lawmakers to create a standard timeline for recounts across all 99 counties while also setting uniform rules for recounting, reconciling, and reporting ballots. 
Pate also would expand the size of recount boards in larger counties with five members in counties with populations between 15 and 49,000 and seven members in county populations of 50,000 or more. Currently, three-member boards handle recounts. The highest profile example of the need for changes is the 2020 congressional race in the former 2nd District, which U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks eventually won by just six votes. The recount process in the district revealed a patchwork of county-by-county recount procedures. Voters and candidates deserve uniform rules to make sure recounts are accurate and fair. It should be a priority of both Democratic and Republican lawmakers to make this happen. Aside from Pate's proposal, the statewide Association of County Auditors is asking lawmakers to reconsider actions they took to shrink the early voting window in Iowa to 20 days. Iowans used to have 40 days to vote early, and the 20-day period approved by majority Republicans has made early voting tougher for voters and has increased the workload for election workers. In the shorter window, voters who make a mistake on their absentee ballot request form have little time to correct the mistake and receive a ballot. Returning ballots by mail carries risk, given that all ballots must be in a county auditor's office by 8 p.m. on Election Day. Some voters have been thwarted by these rules. Votes cast by Iowans temporarily living out of state may not count. More than 370,000 Iowans voted absentee in 2022, down 30% from the number who voted early in 2018. Unlike Pate's proposal, the auditor's ideas are likely to meet resistance from Republicans who run the legislature. If the lawmakers won't widen the early voting window, auditors have requested they be allowed to send out requested ballots five days early to ease the workload and time crunch. This strikes us as a reasonable request, although election law changes have become politically charged in recent years. We urge lawmakers to listen to the Iowans who must run elections under these rules. Voters from all political parties will benefit. And again, that is the editorial from the Gazette. The guest column today is submitted by Rick Moyle and the title, Oppose Using Public Dollars for Private Schools. The governor of Iowa must truly believe rural Iowans are dopes. She is tripling down on her attempt to privatize public education this session by running ads paid for by a super PAC in an attempt to convince rural Iowa that she has your child's back. Kim Reynolds has underfunded public education for years and now wants the taxpayer to help fund private schools. After keeping it under wraps for some time, she now believes she can push this scheme through for her for-profit cronies and campaign contributors. She's running around saying this is school choice. Iowa parents already have school choice. This is not school choice. A majority of Iowans believe that public money should not go to for-profit private schools. Since when did the governor care about what real Iowans want, though? Private schools decide who is accepted, and there are no oversight requirements for the public money that will go to them. You, the taxpayer, will have no say in what is done with your tax dollars that will be handed out for for for-profit private schools. 
Originally coming from a small town in Iowa, I have seen the consolidation of school districts, and it has been reported that this legislation will force more consolidation of public school districts in rural Iowa. Towns already struggling to keep hospitals, stores, dentists, and other essential needs face the loss of another strong pillar of their economy and identity. While she has been in Des Moines as lieutenant governor and governor, she has supported everything under the sun that takes away from working families and gives to big business. They are the same big businesses from which she received many, receives many of her biggest campaign contributions. She has advocated, voted for, or signed legislation that has lowered taxes for the rich, stripped away workers' rights, lowered the minimum wage, gutted workers' compensation for those injured on the job, watered down unemployment benefits for those who lost jobs through no faults of their own, and backed a slew of other anti-blue-collar worker policies. Her policies have contributed to not only pushing some of the best and brightest teachers out of this state, but also skilled labor people. Governor Reynolds is so far out of touch from working Iowans that it is simply mind-blowing. Her policies have had a negative impact on rural Iowa for many years, as did her predecessor, Governor Terry Branstad. We watch rural Iowa die a slow, painful death. Yet we still give elections to the likes of Kim Reynolds and her ilk by either not paying attention to their policies or simply just not voting because we gave up. Rural Iowa can no longer afford to vote based on sound bites and picking an R or D behind a name at the polls. If we allow it, this school voucher program will be one more nail in the coffin of rural Iowa. I urge you to contact your state representatives and let them know you are not willing to decimate rural Iowa any further. Public money does not belong in private for-profit schools, period. And that's submitted by Rick Moyle, who is executive director of the Hawkeye Area Label Council, AFL-CIO. One community letter today is titled, Converting Emissions Helps Environment. For more than 15 years, Biothermal Energy, Inc. of Cedar Rapids has developed and patented a technology which uses landfill gas as the feedstock to produce ethanol. Landfill gas, known as LFG, is considered a greenhouse gas, so to produce ethanol with it benefits the environment by reducing these harmful gases, reduce the negative environmental impacts of landfills, and provides economic benefits to Iowa communities. In addition, the LFG to ethanol process generates an excess megawatt of utility power for net export to the grid. This new technology is a game changer for Iowa communities and Iowa farmers since it is another source of feedstock to produce ethanol in Iowa. Preliminary economics indicate that the process is very profitable for an LFG rate of about 1,200 standard cubic feet per minute, which is predominantly 50% carbon dioxide and 50% methane. BTE's technology will benefit Iowa. 48 landfill operations in Iowa can be improved environmentally. Even after closing the landfill, 
additional annual net revenues would be generated by the LFG to ethanol process plant operations because LFG is typically produced for another 20 years after a landfill is closed. And that's signed today by Gary Young, who is president of the Biothermal Energy in Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, for today, Friday, January 13. And now we turn to today's obituary page and start with the short notices. First, from Calamus, Dolores Anderson, age 83, died Thursday, January 12. Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence is assisting the family. In Cedar Rapids, Susan M. Frischkorn, 77, died Thursday, January 12th. Papich Cuba Funeral Home East in Cedar Rapids. In Dyersville, Bonnie M. DeSoto, 80, formerly of New Vienna, died Thursday, January 12th. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting. From Stanwood, Linda St. John, age 72, died Wednesday, January 11. The Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence is assisting. In Wakan, Diane M. Moose, age 77, died Wednesday, January 11. Martin Grau Funeral Home, Wakan. And from Sarasota, Florida, formerly of Kelowna, Rhett L. Schlebach, age 4, Died Wednesday, January 11. The Beatty Petersheim Funeral Home in Kelowna is assisting that family. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Iowa City, Kelly Durian, 55, a longtime resident of Iowa City, died January 9, following a long fight with depression. Honoring his wishes, cremation rites have been accorded, and a family mass will be held. A celebration of life will be held in the spring with details to be announced. Instead of flowers, his family requests that donations be made in his memory to the National Alliance on Mental Health. Online condolences can be sent to his family at lensingfuneral.com. In Marion, Jenny Miller, age 76, passed away at the Winslow House Care Center in Marion, Wednesday, January 11. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories Sunday, January 15th from 2 p.m. until service time at 4 p.m. with Pastor Sherry Ilg officiating. Private interment will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery Garden of the Last Supper. Condolences to the family can be left at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. From Cedar Rapids, Shirley Ashbrenner, weary traveler, age 79, became perfectly restored in God's time, surrounded by loved ones, Wednesday, January 11. Visitation will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 15th at the Legacy Center in Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. An additional visitation will take place from 11 a.m. to noon, Monday, January 16th, at the Legacy Center. Funeral services will take place Monday in the Murdoch-Linwood Chapel beginning at 1 p.m. But in honor of Ron and Shirley never being on time, 
services will start at 1.05. Memorials in her memory have been established. Please share a memory of Shirley at the MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. From Iowa City, Carolyn Evans, Carolyn Faye Evans, age 82, died Wednesday, December 28, at the University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City. Carolyn was preceded in death by her parents and husband and brother Alan. A private memorial service will be held at a later date. You can share a memory or condolence at Gay and Chia funeral website, gayandchia.com. In Coralville, Kimberly K. Lestina, age 57, died Tuesday, January 10, at her home. Memorial Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 18th, at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Olwine. Memorial Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 17th, and from 9 to 10 a.m. Wednesday at the Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home in Olwine. Online obituaries can be left at jamesonschmitzfuneralhome.com. In Cedar Rapids, Marilyn A. Wallace, age 81, passed away Tuesday, January 10. Visitation will take place from 5 to 7 p.m. Sunday, January 8, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Funeral service will begin at 9 a.m. Monday, January 16th, at the funeral home with Pastor Sherry Schwab officiating. Online condolences for Marilyn can be shared at MurdochFuneralHome.com. And lastly, from Manchester, Mary Esther Carey Hutchcroft, age 99, formerly of Middletown, passed away Monday, January 9, at her daughter's home. Online condolences can be sent at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home, LeonardMullerFH.com. Funeral service for Mary is at 1 p.m. Monday, January 16th at the First Presbyterian Church in Manchester with the Reverend Nathan Lamb officiating. Manchester visitation is from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Monday, January 16th at the First Presbyterian Church in Manchester. Middletown visitation will be 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Wednesday, January 18th at Simple Gatherings, formerly the Middletown Presbyterian Church. That's located at 225 Main Street in Middletown, Iowa. Interment will be at the Middletown Cemetery. Turning now to the sports page, this girls basketball story is by Jeff Linder. Decora Duo forms elite backcourt. Briar Dua and Yasmeen Witsit played on the same team last year, but they now agree they weren't really teammates. We didn't have the best chemistry, Dua said. We weren't on the same page. We fought against each other for points. Both wanted to be the alpha female. Instead of competing together, we were competing against each other, Witsit said. We both wanted to be the best. If the Decorah Vikings were going to reach their true potential, things had to change. Sometime last summer, they did. Somebody called a truce. We needed to get this fixed, Dua said. It shouldn't be us against each other. So, through the off-season, they worked out together. Individual numbers became irrelevant. I can't think of the last time I looked at varsity bound, Dua said. 
Now, in Sepatico, Dua and Witsit have become, arguably, the best girls basketball backcourt in the area. And the Vikings, ranked number six in Class 4A, are a threat to accomplish significant things between now and March. Decora takes an 11-2 record into tonight's game at home against Charles City. We set our goals pretty high for this year, Coach Shannon Quandel said. We had an idea that we could be better and take advantage of what we've got. It was a matter of getting everybody rowing in the same direction. Quandel set a simple theme for the season, together. Everybody needed to understand that one or two people couldn't do it alone, she said. Everybody has a place and a purpose. Dua's purpose is as floor general. The five foot six senior point guard, the Truman State signee, averages 17.4 points, 4.8 rebounds, and 3.6 assists per game. She has become a great leader, Quandle said. It seems she's always about three plays ahead of everybody else. Witsit is a 5'7 junior wing who averages 22 points per game and shoots 45% from the three-point range. She's really shooting the lights out, really confident, Quandit said. She's one of the most competitive kids I've had. The Vikings' inside game consists of freshman Brooklyn Fromm and seniors Kylie O'Hara and Haley Ghostman, the latter of whom returned after missing the first half of the season with an ankle injury. Sixteen years have passed since Decora's last undisputed NEIC championship. The 2006-07 season also marked their last state tournament appearance. But if those goals are on the table this season, and an elite backcourt can lead them together, this could be our year, Witsit said, and we really want it. This Jeff Linder story is titled, Kurt Carries Northland Past Regina 72-55. It's not as if Cameron Kurtz's junior season has been filled with bricks. However, I'm down a couple percentage points from last year, she said. It was such a good feeling to see the ball go in tonight. From, wrong, from long range, that's all she saw. Kurt made all seven of her three-point attempts and crossed the 1,000-point career threshold in the process as Class 1A, Third-ranked North Lynn handled number 2A, or excuse me, 2A number 6, Iowa City Regina, 72-52 in a non-conference girls basketball showdown last night at North Lynn High School. The state's second most accurate shooting team at 48.8% coming in, North Lynn hit 30 of 49 from the field. We knew Regina had a good team, Lynx coach Brian Wheatley said, but we've been good about getting off to fast starts. We had another gear in tonight, especially in the first quarter. In boys basketball, this story by Jeff Johnson, Alburnett a threat even in a bigger class. There was potentially applicant Parkersburg, Monticello, Dyersville-Beckman, MFL Marmac, and others on one hand, and North Lynn, Dunkerton, Bellevue, and Bellevue Marquette on the other. Either way, Alburnett's boys' basketball team was going to have it difficult when it came to the postseason. I don't know. There are really good teams in both classes around here, Pirates co coach Jeff Christofferson said. He, was, he has one of them. Alburnett goes into weekend games against Edco tonight in Cascade on Saturday with a 10-1 record, 
and a number seven ranking in 2A. The Pirates have been bumped up this season, one of the smallest 2A schools in the state. I think we can compete, going to depend on who we get paired with, Christofferson said. Really a good group, close, a multi-dimensional team. Those dimensions include athleticism, height, and defensive ability. Christofferson is in his 29th season as head coach at the school. He led Albernette to the state tournament for the first time in 2019, the Pirates getting to the 1A state championship game. I'm happy with where we are at, he said. The young kids have really brought, or excuse me, bought into what we want to do defensively. And I tell you what, we told them the other day that it's beautiful to watch how they share the basketball with one another on the offensive end. We've got probably seven guys that come in there and get 20 points on any particular night. Albernette graduated its leading scorer this last season, Andrew Osman, but Christopher said he had an inkling this team would be successful. The annual Wells Fargo Advisors Shootout is Saturday at Cole College's Cohawk Arena. There are seven games with Durant and Mediapolis kicking things off at 10.30, and Iowa City Liberty and Fairfield closing things out with their game at approximately 7.30. In between, Central City and Dunkerton play at noon, Belleville, Marquette, and Don Bosco play at 1.30, Cascade and Albernette at 3, Linmar and Cedar Rapids Prairie at 4.30, and Pleasant Valley and Ames play at 6. Turning now to the living page, this article is called simple switch. Get healthy by swapping out processed carbs for high quality carbs. For many people, figuring out the best diet for optimum health isn't easy, but studies show that almost anyone can lose weight and improve their health by making one simple change to their diet. The trick? Cut out processed carbs and replace them with high quality carbs. These include fruit, vegetable, beans, lentils, quinoa, and other grains like brown rice, barley, farro, and steel-cut oats. According to a large and growing body of research, this one swap could help you lower your risk of cancer and type 2 diabetes, reduce your likelihood of dying from heart disease or a stroke, and help you shed pounds without counting calories. While it sounds simple, for many people it will be a big change. These high-quality carbs make up just 9% of all the calories that Americans consume. For most people, processed, low-quality carbs are dietary staples. They make up 42% of all the calories that Americans consume. They include the packaged foods that dominate many supermarket shelves and household dinner table, like white bread, pastries, pasta, bagels, chips, crackers, and foods with added sugar, like breakfast cereals, flavored yogurts, desserts, juices, and soft drinks. What happens when you swap out processed carbs for high-quality carbs? Studies show that the fiber in these foods have multiple benefits. It promotes satiety, which helps you feel full. It nourishes the microbes that make up your gut microbiome, which can lower inflammation and protect against chronic diseases and it improves your, improves your blood sugar count and your cholesterol level. A large meta-analysis in The Lancet examined the health benefits of eating different types of carbs. 
The analysis, based on data collected from 4,635 people in 58 chemical trials, showed that adults who ate the highest level of whole grains, vegetables, and other fiber-rich carbs had a 15 to 31 percent reduction in diabetes, colorectal cancer, and their risk of dying from stroke or heart disease compared to people who ate the lower amounts. They also lost more weight. Despite not being able to eat less food or do more physical activity, said Andrew Reynolds, a nutrition epidemiologist at Otago Medical School and co-author of the research. Why are processed carbs so bad for you? On average, Americans eat five servings a day of foods with refined grains like white bread and pasta and just one serving a day of foods that are whole grain, like brown rice and barley. In her research, Zhang found that Americans have been cutting back on their intake of sugary sodas and other foods with added sugar, thanks to growing public awareness about the damaging health effect of sugar. But at the same time, we've been eating more and more food with refined grains, in part because they are so ubiquitous. We're seeing an overall trend toward increased consumption of refined grains, Zhang said. With refined grains, we're missing our target. These foods have been stripped of their fiber, vitamins and minerals, and industrially converted into flour and sugar. Healthy carbs are those that haven't been highly processed and stripped of those natural fibers. If your goal is to lose weight and improve your metabolic health, you don't need to count calories. Just start by cutting the empty carbs from your diet. Here's how to do it. Cut the white foods, cereal, pastries, white bread, white pasta, juices, and sweetened beverages. Add healthy carbs, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and lentils. Add healthy fat and protein. Nuts, seeds, avocado, eggs, poultry, yogurt, and seafood. Add healthy grains, whole wheat breads, beans, peas, lentils, legumes, quinoa, fruits, vegetables, and other unrefined carbs. Add higher quality nutrient-dense foods back into your diet. Look for foods with descriptors like minimally processed, seasonal, grass-fed, whole grain, and pasture-raised. It may be tough at first to cut back on some of your favorite refined carbs, but you won't feel as hungry if you replace them with fiber-rich carbs and healthy fats. In Latin American cuisine, red, black, and pinto beans are staples. In the Middle East, people have been using chickpeas and sesame seeds to make hummus and other dishes for centuries. In India, red and yellow lentils can be found in delicious dal, soups, and stews, and in the Mediterranean, many dishes incorporate things like fava beans, cannellini beans, and split peas. Americans eat a shockingly low number of beans, nuts, and seeds. We should eat more like these other cultures around the world. Also on the living page, why you should know your vitamin D status. This is by Nicole Johnson, Notes on Nutrition. What is your status? That's a common question, but most people are not thinking of it in terms of their vitamin D status. Most people do not know what their vitamin D level is or if they need to make changes. 
According to the National Institutes of Health, about 42% of the population is deficient in vitamin D. That percentage is higher in certain populations. So with winter here and dwindling sunlight, now's a good time to focus on where you stand with vitamin D. Why do we need to pay attention to our vitamin D level? Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin important in part to many systems within the body. It is best known for being key in the absorption of calcium from the gut, which translates into stronger bones and teeth. Vitamin D also helps regulate bone density and muscle spasms by maintaining adequate amounts of calcium and phosphate in the bloodstream. And low vitamin D levels have been linked with bone density concerns in people of all ages. Vitamin D has many other roles within the body, including regulating processes associated with cell growth, neuromuscular and immune system support, and blood sugar control. It also can help reduce inflammation within the body. This month, high B dietitians will be offering 1,000 free vitamin D screenings at more than 60 locations throughout our eight-state region. A simple finger stick is all you need to find out your level vitamin D level. You can request your free vitamin D screening appointment by contacting your local dietitian. These screenings are sponsored by Vitamin Wellness. Vitamin Wellness is our personalized vitamin subscription program designed to help individuals continue to meet their health and wellness goals. You can take a free five-minute quiz online at vitaminwellness.com for personalized recommendations from our team of dietitians. For more guidance on meeting your nutrition and wellness goals, you can schedule a free discovery session with your local high vee dietitian to learn more about different program options, including Healthy Habits Meal Plan and Begin Program. And for a meal that will give you a good vitamin D boost, Try making creamy salmon linguine for dinner tonight. And that creamy salmon linguine recipe is included in the article. Also in the living section, this article, which I may need to abbreviate in the interest of time, dry January, are there really health benefits? As people start the new year, many will refrain from downing a cold beer or sipping on a salt-rimmed margarita for a trend known as Dry January. The concept is to abstain from alcohol for 31 days to begin the new year with a clean slate and better wellness. But in an era of juice cleanses and workout selfies, this publicly declared dedication to health has become controversial, with some naysayers questioning any long-term positive results if participants return to their original drinking habits after January is over. There is a health benefit, no question, said Dr. Mark Lamott, gastroenterologist, hepatologist, with the Center for Gastrointestinal Disorders in Hollywood, Florida. You are not exposing yourself to a toxin for a month, but more than anything, it's a psychological gateway to cutting back on alcohol. Without drinking in January, it's likely that you'll achieve a deeper sleep that leaves you more well-rested, stay better hydrated, reduce acid reflux, lose weight, lower your blood sugar, and rest your liver. Just don't expect too much too soon. If you've been drinking for 10 years, is one month going to make a difference? Probably not, Lamette said. 
hopefully one month, will lead to two or six, and that will allow your liver to go back to normal function. It's a kickstart. Saul Kravick, age 59, chose to participate in Dry January, encouraged by his 24-year-old daughter, who also decided to take part. He believes abstaining from alcohol will enable him to lose the few pounds he put on during the holidays and improve his running times. I think I'll just feel overall better, he said. I'm hoping it leads to a dry February. Krevick, a Davie, Florida resident, said while he drinks only about once a week, giving it up entirely is a challenge. I'll have to drink mocktails, he said. And in abbreviating the article, I'll jump to the end. Over time, alcohol use has increased significantly, and now it's one of top three reasons people ultimately need a liver transplant, said Dr. Bobby Zervos, a, excuse me, Zervos, a hepatologist from Cleveland Clinic, Weston. When you cut out alcohol, it allows the liver to regenerate and reset. Doing it for any period of time is good, he said. Drinking also adds extra calories to your diet, enhances food cravings, and slows down metabolism. Research shows even a brief break from alcohol can lead to weight loss. It can cleanse all the fatty accumulation in your liver from sugars. Red wine in moderation has long been thought of as heart healthy. However, women now make up the majority of wine drinkers and are more likely than men to develop liver disease. Finishing up with the weather story for today, this by meteorologist Jan Ryard. As we head into the weekend, we have a mild temperature forecast. Highs look to top out in the low to mid 40s, even soaring to the upper 40s and some 50s for parts of eastern Iowa, possibly by Monday. To put that into context, the average high right now is about 28. Cedar Rapids averages its lowest high temperature of 2017, or excuse me, of 27 degrees on January 17 and 18. So we are about to round the bend to warmer temperatures on average. That said, there still are plenty of opportunities for cold snaps as winters have been hanging on through March and April in recent years. January to March, outlooks from the Climate Prediction Center give us equal chances of above and below temperature averages moving forward. Today, looking for a high of 29 in Cedar Rapids and a low of 15. Iowa City, a high of 31 and a low of 16. The normal high today, again, is 28 degrees. The normal low is 11. The record of 57 degrees was set in 1961. The record low of 25 below zero was set in 1912. Sunset tonight at 4.58 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.33. That gives us 9 hours and 25 minutes of daylight. And we're in the waning gibbous moon phase with moon rise at 11.39 and set at 11.24. And that does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Friday, January 13. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading online at our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. Have a great, safe day.